What motivates, motivates us to change? What motivates us to put to death sin in our lives? We must remember that Revelation is written and was written to seven specific churches. So these churches were in view as God gave the book to John and John wrote it down. <laughs> so these churches and their problems, as we saw, five out of the seven churches were in major difficulty. They had sin problem in their church. Matter of fact, turn with me real quick to Revelation 2, 19. Just to remind you of the problems that were going on in these churches. One church in specific, the one in Thyatira, had a problem with immorality. Uh, that wouldn't be a problem in our society, would it be? Notice in, in 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. They had a major problem in this church, didn't they? So what motivates change for these churches? How about look at Revelation 3. Another church that had some major problems. Laodicea, again, out of the five. In 3.15 it says, I know your deeds, Laodiceans, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are worthless or lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined from fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline Therefore, be zealous and repent. The Laodiceans had a major problem. They had a problem of uh, wealth, uh, the idol of wealth. Had lots of stuff. They didn't see the value of God. They didn't understand how important Christ was. They had forgotten and left Him and had become worthless. Who's speaking to Him in verse 19? It says, those whom I love, I reprove. I is the one who is speaking. Who's the I? Verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is Christ speaking to them. So what motivates these churches to turn from this sin and repent and trust? The answer would be, a better understanding of Christ. They need to know Christ better. And Christ gets this. As he reveals who he is by the actions to come in the future. See, by studying Revelation, we get a glimpse of our God. We get a glimpse of the Lamb. What he's like. 
how powerful he is, how sovereign he is, how holy he is. And as we study these scriptures, as we spend this time meditating on the wrath of the Lamb, what does it do? It heightens in us an awareness of who God is and who the Lamb is. And it also brings to light what? Our need to forsake sin. Y'all have probably all been to one of numerous services where a pastor got up and gave you five ways to make your marriage better or five things you can do to raise your children in a God-honoring way or any number of different sermons. You've probably heard them, right? And they pick and choose and grab all these verses and put them in there and say, okay, now this is how you do it. It's interesting to me that as you read through the Pauline epistles, Paul always starts with, this is who God is. This is who God is, now act this way. This is kind of reversed with John. He says, look, change, fear me, know who I am, serve me, honor me, know who I am. And then he shows who God is. I suggest that it's not about me giving you five things that will help you raise your children better. I think everybody in here needs a better understanding of who God is. You need to know that he is the wrathful lamb. If you understand how holy he is, your marriages will get better, I promise. You don't look at your wife and yell at her and call her names as you think on and contemplate the wrath of the Lamb. That's just not something that comes to mind, does it? It's humble hearts then. When you're facing horrible situations, like maybe the church in Philadelphia, where you're being persecuted or, or difficult trials, how do you survive in that? Well, you've got to know the sovereign wrath of the Lamb. You've got to know the sovereign Lamb who is carrying out all these details and has spoken and has declared what's going to happen in the end before it happens. He's declared the end before it begins. That's why we're studying this. So today I'm hoping and my prayer is, is that as we look at the second storm of wrath that comes from the Lamb, that it will open your eyes. <laughs> You'll be reminded that God is a holy and just God. Let's look at our passage. Revelation 8. This is why God recorded this. To wake up these churches. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angels took the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and earthquake. And the seven angels who had 
the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters, and the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded. And a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. So that a third of them would be darkened. And the day would not shine for a third of it. And the night in the same way. Then I looked. And he heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Let us pray. Father, your word. And it describes you powerfully. Holy, just, wrathful. Oh God, help us to not just hear this, but to embrace this, to understand this, to understand you. Oh God, we're so, as that psalmist, as the songwriter wrote, prone to sin, prone to wander, and it's because we're so forgetful. We forget who you are. So today, as we look at your word, open our eyes to see your glory, that we may be changed, that we can live lives that honor you. Oh God, please change our hearts. Help us to know you for who you are. We pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. We have seen storms of God's wrath coming in waves and waves. Somewhat reminded me of a few years back when we were in California. I hear that Florida went through a few hurricanes. I think four crossing the state, and every time you turned around, there was another one coming right at you. It was either the East Coast or the West Coast. As we go through Revelation, we have this same concept. Storms of wrath coming from the Lamb. Yes, this is the Lamb, the one who was slain, the one who was beaten on our behalf, the one who who died and was placed in a grave and rose from the dead. This Lamb 
This same lamb, this one that we might all be tempted to say, he's so timid. This lamb is the wrath of the lamb. This is what we're seeing now. Waves of it over and over for those who have rejected Christ. The world is under the siege of the wrath of the lamb. We're in this storm and last time we were in Revelation 7, we saw that in the midst of all this wrath, God says, wait, there's some people that I want to seal. 144,000 specifically. And then there's also a big group that I'm going to save. These same are going to most likely be martyred as we saw down in chapter 7 verses 13 through 17. The idea that they had come up out of the, the great tribulation. And that these people were most likely martyred during that tribulation period. But this was the mercy of God. Why was it the mercy of God? In the midst of all this wrath, God is saving people in Revelation 7. But here in Revelation 8, the second storm happens. We have this gigantic storm that approaches. Today we're going to look at three elements, and you can follow along in your notes, of this second storm of wrath. Three elements of this second storm of wrath. So that we will have a heightened reverence for God. A heightened reverence of God for God. Again, as we think on who God is and what He will do, it will change us. I promise you, as you surrender to this God. First, let's start with the setting for the second storm of the Lamb's wrath. The setting for the second storm of the Lamb's wrath. You have that in your notes? Notice first the setting. The second storm of wrath includes a telescoping effect of wrath. A telescoping effect of wrath. This is found in verses 8 or 1 through 6. Here we have the Lamb broke the seventh seal. Remember, there are seven seal judgments, and then there's seven bowl jud- or seven trumpet judgments, and then there are seven bowl judgments. Uh, in homiletics, I just blew it, guys. They're always supposed to do the reverse. Oh, I did it the reverse, didn't I? For y'all, you see, start with the what? See, I, I reversed my mind. What is What happens first? The seven seal judgments. Next happens the seven trumpet judgments. Next happens the seven bowl judgments. All right. In verse 1, we see the lamb breaks the seal. He initiates the judgment. The seventh seal, the last of the seals. And there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And out of this same seventh seal, the last of the seven, will arise another seven trumpets. And notice in verse 6, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared them to sound. This is called a telescoping effect of wrath. A telescope. All right. So I was thinking about this even this morning. I was going through, yeah, a telescope. Makes sense. And then I thought, Everybody in here, if you looked at a telescope, you would think what? One solid thing. Right? Most telescopes we think of, and this goes to show I'm reading old commentaries. Um, most telescopes you look at and think of are what? One big telescope, right? But do you remember, some of y'all that are older like myself, remember that the old telescopes, you could actually throw them. Remember? You kind of sling them, and they'd come out, and one would be inside the other? That's the same concept here. 
Here, within each of the seven, you go seven seal judgments. In that seventh one, there's like a ring. And in that ring, it's contained seven more judgments. And then at the end of the seventh trumpet, it's also going to do the same thing and expand out into seven more bowls. So it is growing. And they're telescoping. Why is that important? Well, it actually plays into premillennial thinking. If you're going to take and say that chapters 8 and 9 are chronological, then you have to be able to explain things and how it's all folding, unfolding. And that's exactly what he's doing. It's not just recanting what chapter 6 is about. These are new judgments, more judgment. And it's growing and heightening and grow, uh, as it goes along. The first four sealed judgments involved wrath. We saw that back in chapter 6. Wrath from nature. In the same way, in chapter 8, the first four judgments are wrath from nature. God uses nature to bring about this judgment. He uses the world of nature to judge mankind. Yet notice this storm, God's wrath Again, is initiated by the Lamb, as mentioned. While the Lamb is not specified, now look in verse 1. If you look in your Bibles, by the way, sometimes your interpretations or your Bible translations add words in order for you to understand things better. This is a prime example in chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seven seals, that word, the Lamb, is not there in the Greek text. They put it there so that you'd understand it. Why did he put it there? Well, it's to, why did the translators do that? It's so that you recognize that it's the Lamb that's bringing about this judgment. Who brings about the judgment? The Lamb. How do we know it? Because remember, back in 4 and 5, who is worthy to open the seals? The Lamb. And He opens this one too. That's why they add that for clarity's sake. The Lamb is one that bringing, that's bringing it about. Notice next the setting for the second storm of wrath starts with silence. It says, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. The silence heightens the holy fear of everyone in light of the awful consequences. It's literally, folks, the calm before the storm. Now, folks, as we think on this and would you meditate on this, and I hope you think on this, Think about how everything's unfolding for John. He's seeing gigantic wrath, great choirs, everybody's singing. Remember, loud voices has been one of the main things, right? He's watching all this unfold, and then all of a sudden, imagine if we were in here, all of a sudden, everything got silent for half an hour. Completely silent for half an hour. John knows what's unfolding. The reader understands what's unfolding. What is that? The restoration of the planet. Things are being made right. God is judging the world to get it back to the way it was intended to be. And then silence comes. Now, I don't know about you, but silence can be a very scary thing. Think a good question, Davy. If you know that the next—that's a great question. It's all right. It's a great question. If you know a gigantic punishment is coming, 
And the Father that's going to bring that about is quiet. And everybody in the whole place in heaven is sitting there anticipating for a half an hour with complete silence the wrath. Guess what? Talk about fear. A holy reverence of God would be built up. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I always wanted to get my spankings over real quick. If my dad said, later on this afternoon when I get home, that's when you're going to get your spankings, that was the worst possible thing. Because I'd be thinking about it all day long for 30 minutes, silence before the next storm approaches. That's the setting. Notice, third, in the setting, the second storm involves seven angels signaling judgment. Seven angels of God signaling judgment. Speculation on these angels is rampant. Who are they? Is it Michael? Is it Gabriel? Answer, I have absolutely no clue. It doesn't tell us. God doesn't want us to. It's very interesting to me that throughout this time we've been talking about all kinds of different angels and none of them, none of them have been identified by name. Hmm, why? Back to our main theme. Because the story is about the lamb. Even in the identification of the beings, it's not about the angels. It's about the one who is moving the angels to bring about this wrath. The story is about the Lamb. Get our view and our thoughts on this. The trumpet was often an instrument uh, that signaled war. In the Old Testament, for example, in Numbers 10, 9, when you go out to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the land, or the inhabitants of the land, tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. So the trumpet is this idea of here comes war, here comes wrath. Wake up! And these angels all have seven trumpets, each one is going to signal another wave of this wrath. It should wake the people up. And, and fourth, then notice the next first setting. The second storm of wrath includes the prayers of the martyred saints. This is a very interesting little picture in verses 3 through 5. And I confess without spending great amounts of time, I can't give you the full picture. But let me give you an idea when you would take incense and pour them on a burning coals of an altar, a gigantic smoke cloud would billow up. And in this case, we know from chapter 6 that the prayers of the saints, those who had died and been martyred in the great tribulation, were crying out to God, God bring justice, God bring justice. And in a sense, those prayers were added with incense and thrown as a picture to show the wrath of God being stoked. For us that aren't Jewish, except one of us, <laughs> can't understand this concept. But let me, let me give you a little bit of an idea. Last night, <laughs> they were shooting off all these fireworks. At one point, they laid a lid off, off 
tons at the same time, like six or seven. Thankfully, nobody got hurt. At the same time, when they finished, billows of smoke, the whole neighborhood practically was filled with smoke. It was like... <laughs> we knew some power was on display. In a very similar way, as these incense are held onto this, put onto this altar, smoke rises, God's justice is on display. His anger is being stoked. Let me ask you a question. I, I've been dealing on a chat uh, on a page with um, uh, Laura started it about the the uh, Christian gay dilemma, the homosexual um, uh, situation, and whether homosexuality is a biblical concept. It's called application time. The answer to that question is obvious. God's word says that homosexuality is not biblical. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it says homosexuals will not in, 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 enter into the, yeah, be included in eternal life or will not have eternal life. They must repent and trust in Christ, just like liars, right? So we have been looking at this and dealing with this on this blog. One of the things that is constant and continuous in all of their discussion is this, the homosexuals that are blogging also. God is a loving God. God is not a wrathful God. God is never angry. He's a loving God. He wouldn't make me this way. He wouldn't make me this way and then tell me I can't do it. Well, what they've forgotten is that God is also a wrathful God. The smoke that's billowing up here is just a perfect picture that God is an angry God. He is a wrathful God, ladies and gentlemen. This should shake you a little bit. It should. That's what's going to motivate us to trust in Christ, forsake our sin. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Here, those people don't get it. Unfortunately, many of us still struggle with this. Do you have things in your life that you know are blatant sins? Those dark closets that you say, oh, I'm not going to touch them? They're there. Nobody knows about them. Just me. Those sins, ladies and gentlemen, God hates those sins. He's a wrathful God. This is why the world is being judged. How do I know this? Look with me real quick. 920. At the end of this second storm, the people that don't repent, don't turn, he gives what they don't turn from. Look at what we're prone to do. This is what the world is praying to do. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and of silver and brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither, which they can neither see nor hear nor walk. Those things can't see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor their thefts. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, get this. God is a just God. We're seeing it over and over and over in this smoke from the 
altar is just more reminder that God is holy and He hates sin. And He will judge it. We must repent and trust in Him. Let's move on. Second, the first four waves of the second storm of the Lamb's wrath. Let's begin to look at these waves. The angels were prepared. Now in verse 7 we see the first trumpet sounds. Hail and fire were thrown to earth. Hail and fire were thrown to earth. Notice, the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Hmm. So what is this hail and fire? Simple answer. Hail and fire. <laughs> Did you get that? that? It might be a little confusing. Now, I know I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic, but you would be amazed at what people that don't take a literal grammatical historical view of Scripture come up with these things. Well, you know, you got... You'll see the the great mountain that's coming up. That's Muhammad. That's Muhammad in their minds. I know you say that's crazy. No, that's exactly what happens when we try to read our lives into Scripture instead of letting Scripture speak for itself. What is the hail and fire? You ready? It's hail and fire. Hail and fire. Matter of fact, look at this. This is a wild little spot. I think it links with a very, very old book in the Bible. Go to Job, please. Y'all remember the story of Job? Job is under some heavy, heavy, intense trials. Job does admirable at the beginning of his trial. Matter of fact, does excellent, does much better than I would have ever done. After all of his children are killed, he tears his clothes and worships God. Man, he really gets it right. But then, by the end, his his three friends come along. And those three friends help to induce in poor Job a, if I could just have God come down here, I would talk to him face to face, and I would put him on trial. And I'd talk to God and ask him why he's allowing these things to happen to me. In somewhat of a provocative way. And God begins to speak to Job and he says, Were you there? Look, verse 30, or chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. In other words, okay, you want to put me on the stand? I'll tell you what. Let me put you on the stand first. I'm going to ask you, and if you answer any of these questions, okay, then I'll answer your question for you, in effect. In the middle of all this, and he says things like, look at uh, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for, shouted for joy, that's when he began the creation. But look at 38.22. This is just mind-blowing to me. Again, showing the glory of our God and who he is and the sovereignty of our God, and that he knows everything and has ordained everything. Look at verse 22. Have you entered the storehouse of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Well, that's no big deal. 
Her storehouse was somewhere, right? Look at 23. Which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle. Wow! I could very well see this be the very hail. He's talking to Job and says, Look, Job, do you know where I've laid the ammunition for the final judgment thousands of years later? I've got them stored up. It's there. Do you know where it is? You understand, folks. Do you see the power and glory of our God? He's got this hail and fire stuff all figured out. He's even got it stored somewhere. It's all going to come right when he says when to come. When that angel blows its trumpet because he has told it to blow its trumpet, the hail will come. The storms are coming, and it rained down exactly when he says, and it will. I guess the, by the way, looking back at Revelation 8, I guess the, for lack of a better term, tree huggers are going to get a little bit mad at God on this day um, because a third of the trees are all going to die. That's what it says. And all the green grass, everything green at this time is going to get burned up. The reality is this. When God judges the creation, he can do it the way that he decides to judge it, right? My son asked a great question. We'll get to this in a little bit. But why would that hurt mankind? Aren't they the center of his judgment? Absolutely. Take the green grass out of here. Take everything green off this planet and we're in trouble. I wonder if the air is going to change just a little bit. In light of the fact that trees produce oxygen, all the things green produce oxygen. They take CO2 and turn it into oxygen. Right? I think the world's going to change and it will be dramatic. Second trumpet sounds. A great mountain was thrown into the sea. Look at it. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown in the sea and the third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life, died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So what's this great mountain thrown into the sea? Again, this time it's got this simile there. You see it? Like a great mountain. That means it's something like a mountain. It's not literally a mountain. If it said, a mountain will be thrown in the sea, guess what? God's going to rip a mountain up off the ground and throw it into the sea, or he's going to create a mountain. But he said, like a mountain. So it's an object, a big object, probably a great big object, somewhat like an asteroid. Very well could be. We take this as a literal, uh, grammatical, historical, literal interpretation. Again, not Muhammad. Or Babylon, or... Or Rome. These are figures of speech, yes, but you take them, you don't just come up with something out of your mind. You go with what the passage is saying. This mountain has effect on something. What does it have an effect on? The sea. It does something. It literally kills a third of the sea, becomes like blood, and a third of the marine life dies. Now, question is this real blood? Well, it says a third of the sea, what's it say? A third of the sea became blood. Here it's not simile. There's not a like or as there. Guess what? 
became blood. It became blood. I'll tell you what, if you kill a lot of whales at the same time, the sea would look pretty red, wouldn't it? I mean, there are countless fish in the water. We can't even comprehend the amount of sea animals that are there. We don't know. God is able to turn water into blood too, isn't he? Based on what? Remember the plagues of Exodus? He did it through Moses. Um, supernatural is not impossible. Look, just a side note on this too. Um, folks, if you can read Genesis chapter 1 and believe it, then you have no problem with the rest of the Bible. It's a fact. God created everything in six days, period. He created everything in six days. Look at the stars. Those were a side note for him. He made them all. He made the stars also. If he can create all that in six days, guess what? There's no problem with him making a third of the sea blood, right? It happens. And a third of the fish die. My son brought out a good point. He said, well, why did he judge the fish? What did the fish do? It's <laughs> a good question, Andrew. The reality is, is that if the fish die, people die. It affects us, right? Large amounts of people live off of fish. You take a third of the fish out of the world and a third of the green grass from previously and all the green things, guess what? Starvation is getting bad again in this storm. The third trumpet sounds, a great star fell from heaven. Now the water is going to get destroyed by these meteors. Most likely a meteor of some sort or another asteroid or something to that effect falls and contaminates the water. Wormwood is a term used for divine judgment in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 9.15 it says, Therefore thus says the Lord the of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poison, poisoned water to drink. In Jeremiah 23.15, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood and make them drink poisonous water. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into the land. In a sense, this is another judgment that affects the water. And then fourth, the fourth trumpet sounds darkening of a third of the heavenly bodies. Now this one, for sure, is some supernatural work. The sun, the moon, the stars are affected by this fourth judgment. I find it very interesting to me that in in the Exodus, that a lot of the similar concepts are used in those ten judgments are now used again on the whole world. Darkness was the ninth of the plagues. Here we have an aspect of darkness coming on the earth. How is the, how is the sun darkened by a third? How does God do this? Again, if God could create it in six days, then he can make it dark on a third of it, can he? Very easy. It's not hard for God. It speaks and it's done. Right? If all the stars, if a third of the stars stop shining, that means he what? Makes a third of the stars stop shining. He can do it. They go out. That's just the way it is. Again, if we embrace Genesis chapter 1, which is truth, it's God's word, then we have no problem with this. Isaiah describes God in his overwhelming power. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand 
and marked off the heavens by the span of his hand. Marked off the hand, the heavens by the span of his hands. How big is God? How powerful is God? He is, look, listen, and marked off the heavens by the span of his hand. Do you know how big the heavens are? Just meditate on that for just a second. He holds the universe in his hand. No problem. He can make a third of the stars, what? Go dark. Now, what does that do for us? Again, please don't let this knowledge just come in and say, okay, I know God is a powerful God. It should affect your life. He sees everything. He knows everything. And by the way, is there anything in your life that that God can't handle? If he can darken all a third of the stars, make everything, measured it by the span of his hand, is there anything too big for God in your life? Anything. Any problem. Nothing. This would be encouraging words for the church in Philadelphia that's being persecuted. Almost every area of life, agriculture, navigation, human health, productivity, and everything is going to be felt by this darkness. Think about it. Amos, darkness is associated with judgment. In Amos 5, 18, it says, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness, not light. Judgment. For the stars of heaven, Isaiah 13, 10, and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed light, its lights. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about that. Isaiah said this 600 years before Jesus came, talking about a judgment to come, that we'll talk about that kind of thing. And here we have Revelation written 600, 700 years later, talking about the same thing. God's judgment will come. God's hand of judgment is once again being fully revealed on the earth. Here we see God's effect affects everything from the smallest blades of grass to the heavenly objects like asteroids and even stars and our sun. For the believers reading this, there must have been a heightened awareness of the power and awesomeness of the Lamb. A reason to have a holy fear, right? A reason to take serious this God and the sin in their lives. A reason to cling to the glorious Savior for deliverance from this God's wrath. Finally, we see the warning of the coming waves of the second storm of the Lamb's wrath. The warning. Notice, God's mercy is still present. Oh, I love this, folks. It's got a double-edged sword to it in verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet and the three angels who are about to sound. The location of this bird, in my opinion, and, and this is my take on this one, screams that this bird is literally speaking within hearing voice of the people on the earth. First of all, you might say, well, animals don't talk, right? Well, if you're learning in Sunday school just recently, a little while back ago, one did, Balaam's donkey. 
It talked. God is able. By the way, there was another one in Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent. The reality is this. God can make an eagle speak. Can he? Yes. Matter of fact, he can make an eagle speak loudly, is what it says, to warn the people. Oh, this is this is beautiful. The wrath has been heavy, but what is he in effect doing? Whoa, it's going to get worse. Wake up. Wake up. Again, we see the mercy of our God. Even in the midst of his wrath, he continues to say, listen up. Listen up. Take me serious. Take God serious. This world is not about you. It's about God. It's not about you getting all your fleshly desires, world. It's about the God who is just and holy and righteous and can be enjoyed if you will forsake your sin and trust in him. This is the woes. In effect, he's even at this last time, even though these people aren't repenting, even though they're not turning, God judging says, whoa, it's going to be worse. Whoa, and he speaks to an eagle, an eagle, a bird. Not know about you, but if I hear an eagle speaking verbally, I'm going to listen, right? Listen! A bird is speaking. It's going to get bad. What should we do? Bow. Forsake our sin and trust in Christ. Bow to the Lamb who is pouring out this wrath. He's your hope. Don't be like those in Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21. Turn and trust in the sovereign God who is carrying out all these events. Let's get personal for a second. Why are you here today? You might think, well, I came because my parents got me to come. Somebody invited me. I'm here because such and such told me to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, you're ultimately here because the God of the universe wanted you here today. He wanted you to be reminded of his holy justice. You are here, ladies and gentlemen. That creator has spoken through, your wor through his word and said he is a God to be reverentially feared. How are you going to respond to that? Is it life as usual? Or is I want to be different? I need you, Christ. There's a way for you to avoid this wrath. There's a great way for you to avoid this wrath. Ladies and gentlemen, everybody in here deserves this wrath. That includes your pastor, the wicked sinner. I deserve hell for eternity. 
I deserve to burn and to be separated from Him and to pay for sin for eternity. And you do too. But the two greatest words in all the Bible are these. But God. But God. Seeing you in your sin, seeing you in your position of wrath, He sent Jesus Christ, the perfect Son. He lived a perfect life. He never talked to His parents. He never lied. He never disobeyed. He never stole anything. He never lusted after a woman. He never committed any immorality at all. He was perfect. He was holy. He was just. He was righteous. He never even had a bad thought. He was tempted in every way, but he never sinned. And that son was crushed. This wrath, as bad as it seems, the wrath of God, the Father, literally was poured out on the Son. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our sin. And He died in your place. You must respond with forsaking your sin and trusting that Savior. Commit your life to Christ. Confess your sin to Him. Acknowledge your need of a Savior. And He was there to die for you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your glorious grace. Thank You for Christ, our Savior, our sacrifice. Despite Your wrath, despite Your justice, that we deserve you provided a way for your wrath to be appeased for us. Oh God, you are glorious. Help us, Lord, to understand your holy justice. Have a reverential fear of you, yet also know your loving kindness in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to live We pray this in Christ's name.